from Amaya Media, you're listening to The Way We Live, a show for women here who are looking to enhance their lives. I'm your host, Natalie Shafani. Performing in front of a live audience is an absolute art. I get nervous just recording this podcast, even though I know it isn't live, and I can do a few takes. Public speaking is a whole other hurdle. And I can feel my heart rate increase just thinking about standing up and speaking to crowds. To have the courage to not only perform solo, but have that added pressure of making people laugh is no easy feat. It's an incredibly special and unique talent. And then when you cross that ability to make people laugh with the background of a data scientist who researches agriculture and climate change, what you get is a guest who could pack a solid punch. Say hello to Arzu Malhotra, who was born in India, grew up in Egypt and the U.S. before she moved to the UAE. As you might expect, when talking to a stand-up comic, the word funny comes up a lot. I'd always enjoy making a silly face or or doing or saying something that I knew would get a rise out of people. But yeah, I I think I've been doing that since I was a little kid, making faces at my dad until he was like, "What are you doing?" So you kind of always knew you were funny. Oh, I don't know if I would say that. I always knew I liked to make people laugh, but mm-hmm. I would never describe myself as a funny person, if that so makes sense. So you're, I guess, more of a performer, if anything. You know, it's funny because I, again, didn't see myself as a performer. I, I found all of that very late in life. So I was always very into science okay. and, and math and tech. Uh, and so I studied uh, geography and mapping and data analysis with a goal to work in science and climate change management. And so I, you know, I was on that path since I was 15 or 16 years old, did the right degrees in college, got the right consultancy jobs and internships going forward, got my master's degree, did all of that. And then one day when I was 24 and in my master's degree and super, super stressed, I'd always loved stand-up comedy and I went, all right, um, why not try? So, like, was this, like, a premeditated decision? Like, you thought about it for a very long time, or was it more spontaneous? You were just like, you know what, I'll try it. A week later, you were up on stage. You know, uh, I think it was more premeditated, because it was something I always wanted to do, but I never got around to doing it. And then once I turned 24 and was in grad school, I was like, you know what, do I want to be the person that does the things that excite them and does the things that light their fire, or do I just want to be another person that goes, oh, let's see, who knows, maybe I'll just let this one go this time. Uh, And so I went to an amateur comedy night and met some really, really kind and loving comedians who helped me over the next few months craft a set and get confident and feel good about this. So you had a support system there working with you. Yeah. And where were you for grad school? I was in Edinburgh in Scotland. Oh, wow. Okay, which is quite cool because Edinburgh has like a very strong comedy scene, doesn't it? Like you have the Fringe Festival and like they're known to have like some really good comedians come out of that. Yes, 100%. Like you have a very strong support system, I'm guessing. Like uh, Phoebe Waller. Yes, uh, Fleabag. Fleabag was a 2013 Edinburgh show. No. It was her Edinburgh show that then turned into a very, very lucrative and award-winning successful program. Uh, so it's that's incredible. like that's like the gold standard of friends. Everyone hopes for that with yeah. their shows. I think it was just fortuitous. I ended up there because it was the one place that did the master's degree that I wanted to do. And so yeah, I I just was in the right place at the right time and got on stage one day, and then everything kind of fell into place. And how long did it take you to kind of craft your sets? A while. A while. Are we talking weeks or months? 
Um, so the thing is, I was also doing grad school mm-hmm. full time. Right. Uh, so I think it took longer. But it was definitely two months between me deciding I wanted to go on stage and me actually getting on stage and doing that little bit of work in between mm-hmm. and testing out what worked and what didn't work. And I think it's also a matter of getting that, that confidence to go up on stage, isn't it? I mean, it's not easy to just put, put yourself out there, especially for the first time in comedy in a foreign country where everything is just like a one new experience after the other. Because, yeah, I think the thing about stand-up that is trickier than, say, theater or dance or other things is it's, there's no set. Exactly. There's no castmates. There's, there's no distraction. There's no props. There's nothing that you can rely on besides yourself to make that show and to, to be that person. And so I think stand-up in that way is very empowering but also very isolating mm-hmm. because it just that the, the, the weight of that show is on you. Right. And that's amazing. Uh, but it's, it's also, also terrifying. Terrifying. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Heart-wrenchingly terrifying. Of course. Do you remember what your first jokes were? Uh, for your first set at least I shouldn't say jokes oh yeah. yeah it was it was a set about me and my and I still do some of these jokes now but mm-hmm. I've, I've worked on them obviously yeah. much better than when I originally wrote them was some of the horror stories I had on Tinder and me reaching a place where my like ovaries were trying to get me to have kids and <laughs> doing really dead. weird things <laughs> so I had a set about like my ovaries being like a little too thirsty like everyone everyone just needs to relax <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was my first set. That was my first set. I've kind of noticed that, I mean, just from the videos I've seen of you online, you t- you tend to touch on being a female in this region, being a third culture kid, being an Indian raised in Egypt, I think, as well as being in the States and here. You did. Look at you. Of course I you did. You did your work. <laughs> of course I did. <laughs> I mean, can you talk to me about the third culture kid aspect as well and how it was like growing up in all of like these, these different places? I think uh, being a third culture kid... Uh, there's so many of us now. Yeah, it's such a there's the world is so globalized and interconnected that mm-hmm. I think so many of us have these these identities that we feel like we're not quite this and not quite that. We're kind of in between. Yes, which um, is not a bad place to be. This is what I've learned with time as well. Because like I've also been the kind of raised outside of the country that I'm from, and for the longest time I was stuck, kind of um, trying to hold on to my my culture, I guess. But you don't have to. Being in between is fine. And if anything, you end up growing up richer. Fuller. Oh, 100%. You have that ease talking to people of different cultures. You understand humor across different, um, I guess, subgroups of people in a way that other people wouldn't, I guess. And I think it's also the, the biggest thing for me about being a third culture kid, culture kid is perspective. Because it points out that the things that we generally use to divide us and to cause discord and the things that we use to judge each other by between cultures or between groups, it's arbitrary. It's all just arbitrary. Everyone's pretty much the same. Everyone has hopes and dreams and fears and laughs at jokes about poop for some reason. <laughs> like everyone, yeah. everyone, uh, we have much more that unites us than divides us. Absolutely. And and I think being a third culture kid, you kind of see the fallacy of the way we divide ourselves into groups much more clearly. And I think that for me has been an important realization to have. And I think it makes me a better version of myself for sure have you ever faced any challenges though just being kind of from a place but like not living in that place i know that you were in egypt as well for a while how was it being an indian in egypt well there were like three other indians there so it was right. very strange and <laughs> and it's funny now you know because i i am around a lot more indians in dubai yes. and because i grew up everywhere else i don't 
I don't quite sound Indian. I don't mm-hmm. quite do the, do the quote unquote Indian things, which I think is a silly concept anyway. But yeah. it's funny because when I say like, oh, yeah, guys, I'm from India. They're like, stop it. No, you're not. No, you're not really Indian. But then when I say, oh, no, I'm American. They're like, how dare you dismiss your culture? <laughs> how dare you? You need to be proud of your heritage. <laughs> and a lot of it is like, what do you want from me? What What do you want and I think a lot of the problems with being the in-between is not what comes from inside yourself it's the way people want to box you or they want to label you or they they want to project and define their own mm-hmm. put their own mold over you yeah and I think that's complex and annoying and painful sometimes you guys can laugh at that my daddy loved me enough growing up so like I can, <laughs> I can take it <laughs> Arzu recently performed her first hour-long show, Unladylike, first in Dubai and then at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. She's also had a few gigs in New York earlier this year. Unladylike was actually a very special piece for me because it was really about my personal experiences all the way through. So the the concept of Unladylike came from when I was doing shows on stage, and not just here, but also in the UK and stuff. Uh, where people would come up to me after shows and be like, don't you think you should do material that's a little bit more, like, ladylike and polite? I don't know if it's fitting of someone like you. And it wasn't just stage stuff. It was the way I lived my life has always been sometimes deemed as not, like, the perfect, like, perfect woman You don't fit the mold. I don't fit the mold. Mm Um, and it's not just about being unladylike. It's also being Indian but not feeling Indian enough. It's yeah. being an American immigrant and questioning whether I belong there because of the climate of politics that's happening there. It's being in a scientific and STEM workspace and being made to feel diminished by people who kind of reduce all the work that I've done to how cute I look while doing it. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, all of these things mm-hmm. that I personally have experienced in my life. Or, or dating and, and marriage and all of these these uh, milestones that we're supposed to hit to be successful. All of these things, it was kind of the frustration and angst with all of that stuff that kind of like swirled in Vortex until I was like, you know what? I'm going to write an hour. I'm going to write an hour about it. Uh, so that that was really the journey of that piece. And it made me confront some stuff that was hard for me to look at, you know, mm-hmm. talking about mental health, talking about body image, yeah. talking about feeling inferior for one reason or another. And it's a, it was hard, but it allowed me to process that stuff. Because if I can perform it on stage, it means I'm okay. Uh, and my show in Edinburgh was at 1130 in the morning. <laughs> so I was up there flyering for a show. How many people showed up in the morning? Quite a few. I never because had it was to French. Yeah, I never had to pull a show. So like on the smallest days it was like 8 or 9 people. Uh-huh. On the largest days it was 50ish people. So y- you can fill a room. I wouldn't recommend it yeah. that early in the morning because <laughs> you have to fly for yourself. So it's yeah. like 10:30 in the morning. I'm like trying to mainline coffee and caffeine into my veins and I'm like, do you want to come to a show? And everyone's like, okay, Yo. wait, you have to fly for yourself. You have to fly for yourself. So you have to go to Edinburgh, book your spot and just PR yourself. Well, you stand on the street and you just hand out flyers really? to people. Yeah. Wow. You have to you have to hustle. You have to hustle when you're in Edinburgh because there's like 4,000 shows. Yeah. So you need to catch the audience yeah. and make them come to yours and not Joe Schmoe's. Um, exactly. And that early in the morning when you're, when it's raining <laughs> exactly. and you're cold and you're, it's your first time performing and you're not even confident if the show's very good, uh, being like, hi, please, <laughs> please, please. <laughs> um, 
But no, you meet some very lovely people actually with your flying. Yeah. I met someone who was a professor at the university I used to go to in America wow. who like wrote a book that I really liked for a class. Like it was this, you know, you, yeah. you, you have the opportunity to see and talk to a lot of people you never would. So it's fun, but it's very demoralizing when you're like, come to my show. And they're like, no, get out of my face. And you're like, OK, have a nice day, <laughs> sir. You, you take care now. Have you had to adjust your show for different audiences? Yes and no. Uh, you know, one of the things I've tried to do very conscientiously over the last year and a half is to write comedy that isn't necessarily region specific. So universal. Yeah. And write comedy that's about me and okay. like my experiences personally because I can I can convey those. I can I can explain yeah. that from my eyes and hopefully that translates. And yeah. so in terms of modifying it for other places, you know, a reference might change. Mm-hmm. A Burj Khalifa might bank, become an empire state. Okay. Uh, you know, a Bollywood actor might become a Hollywood actor. Like mm-hmm. you can a lot of the construct of these jokes is if they're reference based, you modify the references to be more regionalized or you you modify them to make more sense in the context that you're in. But one of the things I've learned is, you know, some material, of course, does better here or does better in the like States. Or does better. Like if you could be specific about something. So like there's some jokes about Indian aunties that I do uh-huh. that land much better here because I think Indians, Arabs and Africans relate to that far more deeply oh, yeah. on a on a deep level yeah, yeah. and it's funny <laughs> we all have one we all do and yeah. they're like super judgmental and they're all, but they're all the same and <laughs> exactly. they, they do the same things in every culture and the funniest thing is when i do those jokes here it's not just indians who are like girl tell me about it it's arabs oh yeah i mean i'm arab i can totally relate yeah. yeah like and i've had those people respond so strongly and be like listen girl i get it i get it i get it so much <laughs> whereas in the states i have some jokes about politics that okay. regional politics that do better in Edinburgh, I have some other jokes that do better. Mm-hmm. It, you know, like everything kind of lands and hits chords differently. But at the end of the day, like comedy is comedy. Yeah. A joke is a joke. And if a joke is funny, it's and it's really funny and it can stand on its own. It's usually going to stand on its own regardless of where you try it. So like I have the same set that I do. I, I did it in Australia. I did it in Edinburgh. I did it here. I did it in Abu Dhabi. Mm-hmm. I did it in the States. And, it, and it's worked because it's just a good joke. Because it's well, relatable. Fingers crossed. I'm it's sure a good it joke. is. <laughs> sure but it, it is. just, it, it works because it's, yeah. it doesn't have to be so regionalized. How have, I guess, kind of the people in your family or your circle um, accepted this venture of yours? Have you been judged or have they been kind of open about it? If they have, they haven't told me. Because okay. I'm very lucky because I've always had a kind of... My parents have always been very liberal, very progressive, mm-hmm. very open-minded. Uh, and they raised me to be that way since I was a little kid. Um, and my like extended family as well were really... you know They were open, lovely, supportive people who all in their own ways did things that carved out a path that wasn't on the vegan yeah. track. You know, we have a lot of female scientists in my family and and women who were uh, lost a husband and were single moms and like raised empowered and intelligent men and women. Mm-hmm. You know, so I I was very privileged that I had a legacy of of strength and and progress and open-mindedness already already in the family. Um and when I started doing comedy, 
I kind of freaked out about telling my parents, but they were actually super relaxed about it. And they come to a lot of shows and they like know all the other comedians. And it's and a great time. okay with you talking about your ovaries bursting? Yeah, your... they're great about it. Yeah. They're, the jokes that they get upset about are not the jokes that I think they'll be upset really? about. There's, there's a joke that I have that is so gross. And my mom's like, ha, I love that one. <laughs> and then there's one joke about me twerking. And she's like, why do you have to talk about twerking oh, on no. stage, honey? And I'm like, like that's the thing. That's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing that upsets you. Cool. All right. Yeah. Cool. Uh, but they're really lovely. And uh, this year, actually, in July and August, I did my one hour special. So they all came and it was like my parents, friends. And it was like that first moment, I think, where everyone went, oh, she's serious about this. Oh, she's, she's real. She's like deadly serious about doing this yeah uh, and they came and they were like oh <laughs> okay and, but they were very supportive and nice about it and if they were weird and angry and judgmental they did not convey it to me i mean that's all you can ask for right yeah and i as think long they, as they convey the support then yeah, you get... they were really supportive and you know they waited after and gave me a hug and it was nice it was just nice to feel that this part of my life is now visible what about the audiences from like place to place to place? Have you felt like people maybe um, heckle differently, or do you, have you have, have you ever dealt with hecklers? That's actually oh, another question. Oh, really? Tons. Yeah. It's like you'd be up there performing, and you'd have someone say something, something, or, or, respond. or interrupt you. Yeah. And does that throw you off, or are you able to kind of maintain your rhythm? It did at the start, but yeah. a, a heckler or someone shouting something is a great opportunity to play, mm-hmm. and it's a great to opportunity improvise. to improvise and okay. just go with it. Uh, I'm not, I've reached the place in my life where I am not very nice when people heckle me. I mean, all the power to you, fair enough. I'm not going to be mean to you if you didn't ask for it. Uh If we're just having a chat and you're friendly, great. But if you're trying to clearly be disruptive and you're coming in with that attitude of like, oh my God, I'm going to throw her off, I will end you. And it'll be great. (laughs) Give me an example. Can you Ooh, share one? Uh, I don't know if I can do it on air because it okay, may not fine. be like <laughs> PC. PC and uh, it may not be the, the language may not be oh, appropriate <laughs> for your program. But no, there's I don't even remember. You just have to basically it's not about what you say. It's about how you say it. You uh-huh. basically if they when you're on stage and when you're doing stand up. You're in charge. You are in charge of that stage. That is your stage. It is yours to control. It is yours to deliver. It is yours to perform. And you need to claim it. If you get a heckler, early on what would happen is they would be able to take the power from me. They They are now in control of that situation. And what you need to do, however it is, whether it's through a witty line or through an insult or through like a diss, uh, is maintain that power. Uh and say, I, you are not in, ch- in control of how the rest of the show is going to go. I think one of the things that I said once was this girl just like shouted something and I was like, do people not give you enough attention? What's going on with you, honey? And then the audience laughed and it was great. And then and I moved on. shock just like shuts her up, doesn't it? Because it's also when you get called out, mm-hmm. then suddenly people are like, I didn't ask for this. Um, but yeah. So you just you just got to do what you got to do. And yeah. watching c- comedians and experienced comedians take down hecklers is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. It's so funny because <laughs> there's a couple comedians here who've been at it for a while. And if they get heckled, you will regret the day you were born. We'll be right back with Arzu. Stay with us. Hi there, this is Shrag from Amaya Media, and we're giving away a pair of Apple's new AirPods Pro. 
All you have to do is take a short survey for us. We're looking to improve our shows and better understand what you, our listeners, like or perhaps don't like when it comes to podcasts. You can find a link to the survey in the show notes or visit our website, amaya.media, for more information. It won't take more than two minutes of your time, and we'd really appreciate it. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way We Live with me, Natalie, and today's guest, Arzu Malhotra. The comedy scene here is still a little young, but growing. We've had so many comedians visit us in Dubai. From the mainstream to the niche, the Russell Peters to the Jack Whitehalls. But what about the local talents, the homegrown comedians like Arzu? So the comedy scene here uh, is... Obviously, it's not super large, but it's still present. We have a couple shows a week, every week. Like where? Uh, at So there's a regular show on Wednesdays and Fridays. The Wednesday show is at the Clavichord in TCOM. Mm-hmm. The Friday show is at Kicker Sports Bar uh, in Sports City. Okay. And then there are new rooms that pop up in different places that come in for a few months or bi-weekly or feature shows that come in with a special theme or guests or something. So if you if you look for Comedy Dubai or, you know, you look on Instagram, we, we're posting about it all the time and it's there. But I think it's not something that comes to mind. At first, when people think of what to do in Dubai. For sure. Uh, But there's also, now there's a lot of community theater spaces, like the uh, Courtyard Playhouse and the Junction, uh, and the Hive as well does things. Uh, There are a ton of spaces, and there are a lot of people engaging in the space, both through... All th- I mean, through theater, through improv, through stand-up, through sketch. So like, do you feel like it's become a bit more mainstream? Or if not mainstream, at least like you guys feel, you feel that you have a lot more support to kind of put on these shows now, whether it's from the venues or the yes. bookers or whatever. I mean, 100%. I think, you know, a few years ago, all of us were in that place where we were trying to qualify that comedy could be useful to do at a venue. And now the tables have kind of turned. And yes, we're still out there pitching. And yes, we're trying to get new rooms. But it's also venues approaching us and saying, hey, we'd love to have a comedy night. And I think that's such a mark of progress. Absolutely, for uh, sure. And the number of comedians has gone up too. Like yeah. I think regularly gigging comedians, I think there's at least 60, 70, 80. Really? Here and in Abu Dhabi and even some of the dudes in Muscat, uh, they come down and we go there, you know. It's so, insane that I can't name one, which is such a shame. Me! Except you now, of course. <laughs> but like, I just need to maybe start to pursue this more and actually go out and look for it and tell people that I know about it. Because going out to watch a show is the funnest thing ever. It's the funnest thing. I mean, thing. you go there and you laugh all night. Like, what more yeah. And and it's also like it, it's different because I think so much of the social life here is like brunches and happy hours. Yes, and that is fun. I I have no beef with brunches and happy hours, but it gets but if that's repetitive. all you do, yes, exactly. It's very repetitive. Um, There's only so much you can talk about. And I think yeah, I think the, the joy of stand up, even just doing it for me, is is that you're in a space that's so social and you're getting to interact with people, and it's just mm-hmm. just an interesting space to be in and interesting people to be around so I love it and I would strongly encourage that you come to a show I mean I would love to I would love to and how many female comics are there 10 to 15 percent of the comedians are female it's small it's quite small so I'd say if there are like 60-ish male comedians that are in the space I think it's about eight nine ten that are so maybe like even 20 percent on a good day but um it's a lot less women it It is is a lot less women so annoying because women aren't less funny it's just that I think that this may be a generalization but just as women we have so much more that we have to kind of um, combat to actually get ourselves on stage there's a lot more I think it's harder to put ourselves out there sometimes yes 
And as well, so I was reading this brilliant book about um, influential female comedic actors and comedians in the in the twentieth mid twentieth century. So people like Joan Rivers and Lucille Ball and all of that. And they were talking about how, uh, as women, they couldn't be the same kind of comedians as men were. So basically, like. Comedians like Joan Rivers were very, very intelligent, Mm -hmm. but they also had to make themselves sexually undesirable because women can't be smart and sexy. Whereas Lucille Ball was super, super desirable, super cute. She was an object of desire, but she played off as very stupid, which is hilarious because in real life she was smart as a whip and was responsible for having the first biracial couple on television, having the first pregnancy shown on TV, producing her own show, getting all, you know, all these syndication deals and all of that for I Love Lucy. She was a powerhouse, but could never portray that on stage. And I think that's the thing that I find the most interesting is that if women are embodying all of these aspects, being sexually desirable, being intelligent, being beautiful, being strong, it comes off as intimidating. And that is a notion that we have to actively combat. Absolutely. Uh, through more visibility for strong women. More conversations as well, yeah. speaking up about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I've talked about this before. I think the things that people attribute with comedy, being outspoken, being strong, being powerful, being funny, these are things that people always just assume are men's qualities. Masculine traits. Which yeah. is an uphill battle mm-hmm. uh, for the rest of us to climb, but I think that needs to change because it's just entirely not true. Yeah, It's not true. Some of the strongest voices we have today are young women who are fighting, Malala and Greta Thunberg, and all of these women are strong as hell and smart too. Um, so clearly, clearly women know what's up. Yeah, but there's just that thing that stops them still. Yeah, I think that that's one thing that I find difficult to combat because if I go to a pal of mine who's male and I go, hey, you should try comedy. They're like, I don't know. I'm nervous. And it's much easier to convince them to give it a go. Whereas with women, we're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I should. How would I look? How would I look? What is that people going to say? You know, women are, I think we're much more wary of that judgment because don't get me wrong, men are judged all the time, too, for things they do not deserve to be judged for by any by any stretch. But I think women not get hit by it more, but it can often be more hurtful and more heavy. Yeah. It can be more heavy and more personal, more personal for women. But it's it's also, I think, for me and my own journey, you know, you're as a woman, you're culturally conditioned to take up less space to cross your legs, to be accommodating, to be polite, to be sweet. If you get catcalled or heckled on the street, you're supposed to like say smile in and don't make eye contact Mm -hmm. and shuffle past not to actively engage because then you were asking for it if they did something. So for me personally, in comedy, you're alone on that stage and you are dominating that space. And for me, I had to learn to be okay to take up space, to be okay to to take power, to and be okay. And how did you learn to get that power? Was it just like practice, 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 time. or just time, right? Because you realize you There's can't... No, like, framework or anything that you followed. You just had to you put yourself out there. Yeah, you just have to try. Yeah. Because at a certain point, you go through that moment where you're like, oh, if I'm hesitating, I can't do this. I just have to figure out how to own this and how how to to stay in control and how to be strong Mm -hmm. you just have to because if you go on stage and you look more scared than you know a a person with a gun to their face like you are not going to have a good show (laughs) it's not going to go well 
uh, because the audience can sense that. It's very clear. It's and very subtle, but they can pick up on anything, can't they? And they won't be mean to you, but they'll feel bad for you. And you don't Have want you an audience feeling bad for you. Have you ever had like a bad day and then gone on stage and immediately felt that you were, like you didn't perform as well because of that? Of course. Yeah. Of course. I have I have bad gigs all the time, even when really? I've had the best day of my life. Yeah, bad gigs are just a part of the game. Yeah, that's uh, I've performed early on. I got asked to do a longer set of 15, 18 minutes. No laughs for 20 minutes. Just straight, just angry, de- dejected, disinterested faces for 20 minutes. And you still kept on going. I was like, I well. Like, give up halfway through. No, I mean, uh, my spirit died. Yeah. But my <laughs> mouth was still moving. My mouth is still moving. Yeah. Uh, you have those days. You have those days where you do a gig in a bar that's not a comedy or performance space. It's more of like a dance place. And the people in there have no interest in hearing you and your little jokes. They just want to play the music. There's a gig once that I did where in the middle of someone's set, some guy from the back shouted, E Gana Bajau, which means play the music. And I was like, what do you do with that? They do not want us here. And you just you just do those gigs and you power through because the good gigs are amazing. They're so worth it. They put you on such a high, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And and it, it makes all the bad days and all the hard work and all the late hours and time spent writing one joke 15 times to make it work. That moment of that good landing or that good show makes everything so worth it. How long does it take you to kind of creating a set to actually landing it and like making it polished and good? Like what's the process there? It's a it's a while. So they always say you, you can't tell if a joke is good unless you've tried it like 20 times. Okay. So you the thing is you have to keep trying jokes over and over and over and over again and crafting and tweaking and crafting and tweaking. You know, to get a five-minute set from scratch can be anywhere from like a few weeks to a few months depending on how how experienced you are at writing, how many times you're able to perform mm-hmm. it, how well it landed the first time. It's a journey. Like to get my hour – Yeah. Um, it took me a solid year, maybe eight months of work uh, with a lot of the material, about 15 minutes of that material I'd already written. And I already had that in my back pocket. And while you were crafting that one hour, you were off testing that material every single week, I'm sure. Three or four gigs a week. I wow. would try to gig as much. Like the last few months, for sure, yeah, I was doing at least two, maximum four gigs per week uh, for a couple months just to keep grinding and grinding. And I would beg, beg, borrow, steal. I would plead for any minutes from anyone anywhere i'll take whatever you can give me please 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 uh because i just needed to keep testing it and keep keep pushing it yeah Um, what about pre-show rituals i mean i personally i suffer from stage fright i get really nervous my heart beats i get tongue-tied and do you still get nervous before a show? Of course. It's and not nervous, nervous, but at least the jitters, for sure, for sure. Okay, but do you have, like, any things that, that you do? Like, do you meditate or do you, I don't know, hold your breath and count to, to count to five? Or do anything to just kind of put yourself in that zone? Um, I don't really know. You know, I used to have rituals of listening to specific songs and yeah, drinking like a Diet Coke and I stuff. Specifics. I used to listen to, do you know RuPaul? Yes. I used to listen to RuPaul music really? for like <laughs> in my early gigs just to get in the spirit of things because I was like, RuPaul is the most fierce person yes. I know. I will just absorb that fierceness through my headphones. Yeah. Uh, now, not so much. Uh, I try to make sure I've drank enough water, mm-hmm. uh, eat some food beforehand. Yeah. Not too much, though, because I hate eating before a show. I, I can't. I'm not very mm-hmm. hungry. Mm-hmm. Just give myself some time to just exist because 
if I'm go running from one thing to another thing to another thing and I have to just go straight from that onto the stage, I'm going to be very discombobulated. Mm-hmm. So I think the best thing for me has just been go to the venue early, hang out, chat with the comedians, relax, go over your material a little bit and just kind of give yourself some space to breathe. What are some of your goals for comedy moving forwards? I definitely want to do another hour at the Fringe. But instead of going for two weeks, this time I want to, like, go for the full four weeks yes. and, like, do a full Fringe run. Uh, so that's a goal. Uh, so flyer handouts every day. Flyer handouts weeks. every day. <laughs> Woo! And maybe not do a show at 11.30 in the morning yes. because that's... That's a no. That's brutal. I for sure want to perform in more countries. Uh, I would love to perform in India. Like that's. Yeah. I want to go. I want to go back and and because I think that's a space that hopefully they will relate to because we have that shared connection of Indian culture. Have you ever performed there yet? No, I haven't. I'm so scared. I'm so scared (laughs) because I'm like, if they reject me here, that would be an ego burster and Uh like a that would be like a day ruiner, Uh a month ruiner. Uh, So I've. Kind of put it off. I've I've put it off. If I'm being honest, uh, and then finally, I would love to perform at some of those sacred venues. You know, like the cellar, the comedy store. Of course, uh, those big NYC or LA places that just everyone goes to. Yeah, I those are you know those are sacred spaces uh, yeah. for comedians. Um, yeah. and it would be like the privilege of my life to be able to. Just be on stage. Even like sweep. If they send me up there with like a vacuum cleaner and a mop, I'll be like, this is the best day of my life. I'm on the stage. I'm cleaning it up, but it doesn't I'm matter. I'm breathing the same air. I'm That's breathing the matters. same air. <laughs> I'm standing adjacent to the mic. Yeah. This is the best day. You can find Arzu's work on her YouTube channel and across all of her socials. Just look for Arzu Does Comedy. And if you haven't been to those weekly stand-up gigs that she had mentioned earlier in the episode, you should go and check them out. A stand-up comedy evening is a great community experience. And as Arzu shared, comedians need us to be able to perfect their material. So let's go support them. This episode is hosted by me, Natalie Shafani. We're produced by Chirag Desai. And our intern is Abhishek Venkat. You can listen for free in Apple or Google Podcasts and Rami or even Spotify. And we'll see you again next week. In the meantime, I would love to hear from you on Instagram. So you can find us on thewaywelive.pod where we keep the conversations going.